Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Join me today. He's a gold medal rower, entrepreneur, mentor, coach, and author. It's David Taylor Klaus. How are you doing today, David? I'm, I'm excited to hear where this thing goes. <laughs> well, we're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with our guests is go right to the end. Talk about where you're from and what were you involved in growing up? Oh my God. I was so, for, originally from Philadelphia, been in Atlanta for the last 15 years. And um, I say, what was I involved in growing up? Totally involved with myself. I was the most important thing in my world. I thought the world revolved around me. My parents did not do enough to dispel that belief until I was older. So I, I was a completely self-absorbed human being. Why do you feel that you were self-absorbed in yourself when you were growing up? I didn't have, I didn't have an active out loud role model of self-awareness. So I didn't have a mechanism or a guide to figure out what was going on in here. Mm -hmm. So I was constantly tied up with the wildly disparate thoughts, the surges of emotions and hormones and figuring out who I was, what I wanted, who I wanted to be. And so I would end up just sort of collapsing into no clue about who I was or what I wanted to do in the world. So that sort of came out in my teen years and early college years as um, self-medicating. Do you yeah. feel that made it hard to interact with people with that mindset or were you able to get along with others and enjoy being a kid or a teenager in that kind of lifestyle? Yeah, I had a blast on the outside. I absolutely did. I, um, flaming extrovert, really good at reading rooms, reading people, reading energy. So <clears throat> I was incredibly facile at getting along with just about any group that I was part of, no matter what the weird array of groups there are in high school, I mm -hmm. managed to be connected to all of them, um, which sort of sent me into a spiral at some point. My first real dark battle with depression came from when I, again, in the vacuum of my own head, started to create this belief that if I could be friends with all of these people, I was clearly just a chameleon and there was no me on the inside. And so if there wasn't anything here, why was I here? And so that was a, that was the first dark brush. I mean, that was a suicide attempt at 14. Wow. So that, that, that got super dark. I think there's people that can relate to that where they're trying to get along with every single person, but they don't show who they are. They kind of just try to, like you said, a chameleon, they match with what's going on with those people in that certain setting. And it's hard for those people to kind of branch out and be themselves and well, it's hard I, to discover I, what themselves is. Yeah. yeah. I knew growing up, like I was trying to be friends with everyone. I didn't want to make enemies. I just wanted to get along with people. But then as I got older, I was like, I got to show these people who I am so that they can get to know the real me. When yeah. you were going through the depression, those dark times at 14, did your parents know what was going on or were you not able to express it to them? No idea. No idea. Um, I, I think they've learned more about that period of my life from me writing about it and talking about it in the last dozen or so years than, than what they experienced then. And it wasn't that they weren't involved. They were incredibly involved. It was that I was completely closing that off. It was easier to keep that inside mm -hmm. than having to navigate. It gets real when you talk about it out loud. Yeah. It gets real when you talk about it to somebody else. And you, the change for me after the next bout, the next dance with depression, um, 
was shifting to living out loud, having the conversations outside my head. That's what makes the difference. It's so easy to become disconnected and become insular and then put a wrapper on. And that, that whether it's that facade you're putting out there or when, you know, early stages of my entrepreneurial adventure, I was living the should life and making it look like I was living the good life. Mm-hmm. So I was keeping all that bundled inside again. And I was, the, the outward behavior looked fabulous, but everything was motivated by building the company I thought I should be building, leading the team I thought I should be leading, leading them the way I thought I should be leading, hiring the people I thought I should be hiring. It wasn't, it, it wasn't the intention that fuels the cultural architecture that builds companies successfully. It was all fear-based and that's exhausting. Yep. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, it's just fucking exhausting. <laughs> yeah. In those years during the high school at the 14, getting older, how were you able to kind of overcome those challenges or those battles that you were having to keep yourself motivated to continue on? Yeah, the, the epiphany was that, yes, I was able to connect and play with all of these other groups. And, and it had more to do with my ability to read, not the emptiness. Mm-hmm. And what the epiphany for me was, wow, if, you can't, if I can't be here for myself, I can't really effectively be there for anybody else. It's the same as energy management. You can't give what you haven't got. And so part of that was beginning to, to spend more time, effort, energy, and attention figuring out who the hell I am. Yep. And connecting from there. And that was the first big difference is connecting from who I am in whatever flavor I do still with just like wildly disparate group, but it wasn't coming from fear. It was coming from desire for human connection. Did you feel that those groups that you're connecting with, that they were real friendships or real people that you can talk to if you could with them? Some of them still today. Um, you know, one of the advantages of, okay, yeah, there's a dark side to social media. You also have people from your past that you never, ever want to think about again, who all of a sudden want to connect with you. But I've also connected with a number of people from the last 50 years who I still have a connection with. We don't see each other every day. Mm-hmm. I mean, bleh, it's the pandemic. Nobody sees anybody, but. <laughs> I think it's so true with social media. It's like, I look at the people from like my high school days and I don't talk to them, but sometimes there's like interaction and communication with them. And it's like, it brings back those like fun memories that you had with them. But even though we don't see each other, but then it's like college, it's like you're living with them. You kind of build it's kind of the same thing with them. You kind of move on and then you're not talking to them, but something will spark that conversation back up with them. That's a great distinction you just came up with. So I don't, I don't want to skip over it. Oh, you're, you, said, <laughs> you said move on. And, and there's something really interesting in that because I think, I think her name is Nina McInerney. Um, she has a fabulous podcast. If I remember correctly, it's called Terrible Thank You. It's when somebody oh, says, yeah. how are you doing? Oh, I lost uh, a pregnancy, a spouse, and a father all within like three months. Oh, wow. And so she, and in her podcast and in her TED talk, she talks a lot about the distinction between moving forward, which is moving forward with all of the experiences and all the people who have been part of your world versus moving on, which is moving away from. And when we try to close off bits and pieces of our world, they don't go away. It's sort of like erasing the directory file on the computer. They're still on the drive. Yep. 
and it still takes energy to store it and hold it. it it's when you don't deal with it, it's coming with you until you deal with it. Yeah. So what's important is to move forward with, you know, integrating your experiences and the people that have been part of your world. And if you don't want them to go with you, then you damn well better deal with it. Yeah. Because those things follow until they're dealt with. And I think that's people don't deal with it. They kind of just think, oh, it's just going to magically go away. And it's like, it doesn't go away. It's still, no, still storing it. You're carrying a backpack full of boulders and pretending it's not there because you can't see it. Yep. And that that's emotionally exhausting. And, and this is not, this is not solely the domain of people who have anxiety or clinical anxiety or clinical depression. No, it's (laughs) Just because you're not playing with it consciously doesn't mean you're not holding it subconsciously or unconsciously. Mm -hmm. That takes energy. So the question we always get asked when we're younger is what's that dream job? What was that dream job that you were wanting to pursue? Oh, I wanted to be, I wanted to be speed racer. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's the worst question you can ask kids ever, ever, especially now. Yeah. Three of the jobs that I've had didn't exist when I graduated college. Now, when I left school, Tim Berners-Lee hadn't even presented his HTML project yet. The internet wasn't thought of, (laughs) not the way we experience it. So, So when my youngest was looking at schools in 2019, one of the information sessions, they said, the children that are sitting with you in this room are predicted to have seven different careers, not seven jobs seven careers and four of them don't exist yet. So when you ask a kid, what's your dream job? Damn well better be answering the next one because they're pushing them to think about what they want to do for the rest of their life is torture. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's constraining, right? It's what do you want to do next? And what do you want to do fully? And what do you want to explore and find all the grandeur and magic in it? And navigate all the shitty parts too it's don't ask people what do you want to do for the rest of your life it's my dream job still is speed racer did you like racing or just the no it's like the cartoon the way i the way i drive maybe (laughs) my my family will tell you different but no i it was it was a style of being in the world that was incredibly present very intense and always joyful i mean i still want to do that all the time couldn't imagine your life if you were just speed racer, just doing all the stuff that that character did. With a chimp as my best friend. <laughs> I don't know with the amount of stories we see on the news about animals and stuff. I don't know if that's the best idea. That's why it's a cartoon. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did you go next after high school on the path of college or did you go straight into the career world? Um, no, I went, I went to, I, I started a seven year stint in college. I left for a couple of years in between and then went back and finished. I, I went to college because that's what you did after you graduated. Yeah. You know, and I, I did well enough in school. I got into an incredibly good college and I got, despite my best efforts and incredible education, I learned how to learn. And, you know, I studied psychology and group dynamics and did absolutely nothing with my psychology degree for the better part of 20 years until I started going into coaching after a career in hospitality and then technology. So now I actually get to use what I studied forever ago. Was psychology like the easy way? Cause I have some friends that did psychology, but 
they kind of, it's always like you need that masters or something else to go with it or it's yeah, like to do something lead, with it. lead into something like law school or something. Well, I, my advisor joked with me that if I really wanted to take the easy route, I should have gotten the BA in psychology, not the BS in psychology. What's so the I, I had <laughs> Bachelor of Arts versus Bachelor of Science. Is it more the rat biology and the behavioral stuff than more oh. the science? I was a brain nerd, so I went the science side. But what made it more challenging for me was I navigated through several majors. It was, I started off pre-med with a computer science engineering minor, and I was rowing crew and I was doing drugs and something had to give. So I stopped rowing, but I, I navigated through a number of majors. And because of all the science and the sociology and the behavioral and the group dynamics study, you know, courses that I had done, psychology was like this far away when I figured out what I wanted to do. You mentioned something about drugs. Were there challenges that you were facing during your college and it kind of exploded because you were getting faced with it everywhere you went? Oh, I, they jokingly called my high school reefer weed. Um, oh. they, said that, they said there was no drug problem. If you asked for it by homeroom, you'd have it by lunch. And so it wasn't that I hadn't been presented with it before. I just didn't have the freedom of schedule that I had in college. And I, I, immer- I am an immersive learner. I do that with my professional pursuits, my personal pursuits, and even my drug pursuits when I was in school. So it got away from me. I left school for two years to work and get my shit together and then Mm -hmm. went back to finish. Do you feel that taking those two years benefited you or could could you have finished the last two years and not have gone out into the work world for two years and then come back? Oh, I had no business going out in the work world at that point. I needed to come back to structure again. Um, the, the, for me, I, gap years were not a thing when I left, when I left high school, mm-hmm. they were very rare and I should have done one. I had no business going to school. I, I love that I got to go and explore and learn things for the sake of learning. Cause we don't get to do that as much in school anymore. And it was great and expensive experience but I wasn't ready to take advantage of what was there for me or to lean into any structure or direction. So leaving for a couple of years to go work and get a better sense of what I wanted and didn't want Mm -hmm. gave me a different perspective when I came back to school. So when I got out, it was more, I was, although my language was not there yet, it was more about what is it that I want to create in this life instead of just talking about all the crap that happens to me. Where did you go for those two years to work? What kind of field were you in? I went to high-end white tablecloth serving in both DC and Atlanta, ended up running a restaurant for a while. I've done everything in hospitality except own. I got tired <laughs> of, of interviewing in jeans and a t-shirt. So I started going in, in a shirt and a tie and saying I was a restaurant consultant. Okay. Cause I would, cause I would look at these folks and what they're doing. And I'm like, Oh, it's one of the hallmarks of ADD, by the way. Oh my God, that's so dumb. I could do it better. And then tell them how they could do it better. Oh, good. You know, if you're a frontline, if you're a server, you don't, if it doesn't matter where you are, you don't do that. There's a way to navigate that. Mm-hmm. So instead I would go in as a consultant and say, look, if there are 50 ways that you can screw this concept up in the, in the first year and I can save you from 25 of them, you can't pay me enough. And I got hired. So I spent a year doing restaurant consulting and had an absolute blast until I got a note from the university, which I only found out about 15 years later was not actually accurate. That said, if you don't come back in the fall, you start losing your credits. 
<laughs> I was like, whoa, they can so do that. <laughs> I was, I was back in three weeks. I was like, done. I'm going to go finish. When you started that restaurant consulting thing, was that kind of like an entrepreneurial spirit coming out right at that time? Or was this something that you kind of had a, a mind to start or it uh, just I, came out of nowhere? I'm, uh, I'm always creating things and I was always entrepreneurial in, in a way, but here's the difference. Um, Michael Gerber from the E-Myth calls it the entrepreneurial seizure. Oh, I can do that. How hard could it be? There's so many people that can say that exact same thing. Yeah. And the, by the way, and you say, how hard could it be? <laughs> That's a wake up call. It's going to yep. be much harder than you think. As long as you have boundless energy and determination or the ability to rally people around you, don't do it. <laughs> oh yeah. Cause people think like, oh, I can come up with that concept or especially, and I only use this shark tank. Oh, I could make something better. I could have done then- that. Yeah. And then you get into like the actual planning process and the financials and you're like, oh, I, yeah, I can't do that. No. Well, those are the people that don't watch the rest of the episode when they take them apart. Right. And, uh, or when you read about those people later on the Shark Tank site and you realize this is what happened with the company. The challenge is that we tend to compare our beginning to somebody else's middle and they're making it look easy because they've gone through so many of the things that you've yet to face. And so we don't have a clear perception of what it is. And we don't think it through very well. This is that idea of slowing down to speed up. If you just slow down a little bit, spend a little time feeling out the answers as well as thinking them out. The smarter you are, the more of a problem it is because you're going to think I can figure out anything. Yeah. Well, just because you can figure it out doesn't mean you should, or that it's something that will serve you in doing it. And too many of the times Jim Rohn used to say, there's nothing worse than getting to the top of the ladder only to find out you've gotten your ladder against the wrong wall. (laughs) And we do that a lot and it's soul crushing. Yes. You talked about rowing. How did you get involved in that? Well, I I rowed in college, but running down to Boathouse Row in Philadelphia at five in the morning during the winter sucked. (laughs) It sucked. And I I was good enough, but I wasn't good. Right. So, but I loved it. And my schedule and my way of being at that time, I couldn't support it. So I quit. Now I went back here in Atlanta in 2003, they've got rowing up on the river in Georgia, not far from where we did the Olympics in 96. Okay. Right. And we got to row at that venue during training and I fell into the boat and fell in love with it all over again. Turns out I was better at it than I thought. (laughs) And uh, by the way, after you're age 27, you're in the master's class. So I felt old as, yeah. Um, It was 39 at the time and it was, I felt really old, but I got into a boat with these four folk and we started to do very well locally then regionally. And we won a gold medal in the Georgia state games. Wow. Yeah. So you talked about three months. (laughs) You talked about how you kind of were selfish and you had that isolated mindset. When you're doing an event where you have to work as a team, did you kind of branch out of that like kind of mindset and actually worked well with your teammates to be able to win that gold medal? Oh, that's why I've been an entrepreneur for 30 years. I do much better when I'm leading the team than when I am on a team, right? I was a terrible employee. 
Um, <laughs> and so when I had more ability to architect the team, yes, I could do very well with that. Part of the work that I've done for the last 13 years as a professional coach is a modality called coactive coaching. And it's very much about that collaborative leading and the co-create, co-creativity. And it changes the way people work together. And whether somebody's been trained in coactive leadership or not, I can bring them into that kind of leadership merely from the way we set it up and ground it. So a lot of what I do, even though this is, you know, would be considered a practice of one with a big support team around me, I do a lot of co I mean, co-leading and co-presenting with folks because that co-creative energy is, you know, a one plus one equals 11 partnership. <laughs> So on those kind of like situations with working as the team, did you kind of try to be, I don't know if this is the that same event, but there's always that person that's sitting the opposite direction. That's kind of like telling the people to, I guess, row at the, the right time. The did coxswain, you kind of, yeah. Do you, do you want that position? Because it was that leader kind of role instead of being in the boat and following that leader. Yeah. See, I was in a boat, a four man boat that didn't have a coxswain that didn't have the 125 pounds screaming at you. <laughs> and, you know, each position had a different role. The front one set stroke, the second one set the power, third one set the pace. So there's each position had its own role. So it's collaborative leadership. Mm-hmm. I'm much better in that environment. The, the, you know, Patton said, there's nothing worse than leading the charge and turning around to find nobody following you. Yep. Right. And that kind of old command and control uh, uh, leadership style, even the military who originated it has let go of. So more of that collaborative leadership. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of Owen Eastwood and he talks about how, you know, different tribes, different ancient tribes, the leadership is something that moves based on the capability and the capacity and who's best to be in that position at that time for that role. It's the exact same thing we see in wolf packs. Mm-hmm. It's not hierarchical and it's not done by age it's done you assume the role it's almost as if leadership is begrudgingly uh, you know you begrudgingly assume the mantle because you're the best one for it accept it with humility and a sense of service it's the difference between a boss and a leader a boss is clear how many people report to him yep a leader is very clear about how many people they serve yes that's the difference that's so true because a boss. I always look at it as the boss has the title. A leader is someone that kind of gets that respect in a way, or kind of is that like leader that can help people or wants to help in a way. Like they don't have to have that title to be a leader. That was Simon Sinek's post a couple of days ago. Was the boss has the title, a leader has the people. Yep, it's exactly what you were saying. Because I think when people are looking at that leader, they kind of can relate to that person a lot more than the person that's a boss that maybe has never done what they, the, the, their employees have done before so that they can believe more in the facts or the help that the leader can give off. I think I said that yeah. right. I don't know if I was. Well, one of the challenges we have is, is even the opposite where the boss is often used to be the best salesman. So now he's the sales manager. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that he can do it. He understands a thing about managing people. In fact, he was probably really good at what he did because he was hard to manage. Yeah. And so now they put him in a position, which is not what he loves to do. 
and managing people, which is also not what he loves to do. <laughs> and we see so often, you know, what's missing in leadership is growing leadership, yep. right? Teaching people, bringing people those skills along the way, as opposed to promoting them and saying, yes, doesn't work that way. During the time of rowing, were you still battling depression or was it an escape to kind of clear the mind in a way to help with it? Better than escape. It is a, it is a management technique. So both for ADD and depression, exercise, moving the large muscle groups with frequency makes a tremendous difference on the natural body chemistry and neurochemistry. And when I start to notice that I'm getting dark or more easily distractible, the more I move, the better I do. Mm-hmm. The more I incorporate movement and exercise, even just using a standing desk and being able to change positions, even that when I'm stuck, as we were saying, I've been here 13 hours today, right? I also know that I make time to move around the office and the house and to do other things so that I'm not just sitting. Yeah. You know, sitting is worse for us than cigarettes. And yet we don't, it's the easiest thing for us to change. Yep. And we don't. I remember when I worked at office, I would walk around our office because I was tired of sitting all day and it kind of generated the energy, got me thinking the creative mind was going. And then I come back to the seat and it's like I was performing even better when if I was just sitting there for a long period, all eight hours. Makes it makes a massive difference. Walking meetings that was a, a, a big shift for some companies. EOS, the the entrepreneur operating system, one of the things they talk about with their level ten meetings is having the stand up meeting check ins during the week, so that you at least get people out of their mm-hmm. out of that cocoon. Yep, doesn't matter how nice the office is or how small the cube is. Sitting still is our bodies do better thinking while we're moving. I agree. What's the biggest thing you've learned about yourself during your time as an entrepreneur? Oh my God. I know absolutely nothing. <laughs> I seriously, I, I think the, 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 the most important lesson is that the more I can approach things with a beginner's mind, the better off I am. I, I, I do better. I judge myself less and I learn a lot more and I, I always outperform. It's when there's nothing that gets people into trouble more, especially me. It's not what I don't know that gets me into trouble. It's what I know for sure that ain't so Mark Twain. It's it, that certainty is the death knell to an entrepreneur. Once you think, you know, the answer you don't. Yep. Cause you My- miss all the changing conditions that are constantly changing. And there is no, I, I may know this right now. I do the best that I can with what I know at the time. And when I know better, I'm supposed to do better. Mm-hmm. But that, that only happens if I'm paying enough attention to know that conditions or information has changed. Do you feel when you go into that with a beginner's mindset that it helps you with the performance and the outcome of your results better than if you went in knowing it already, but then the performance doesn't match up with what you should have known. No doubt. And then there's, there's the idea. I wish I could remember who wrote the book rookie smarts. You know, when you have what's brilliant about coming in as a consultant or a coach is that you get to ask questions that nobody there would ask because they already know the system. They already know the culture. They already know the process. They already know the product. They already know the answer. But 
as an outsider, I can ask questions that they would never think to ask or be embarrassed to ask or think is ridiculous to ask. Yet, just asking those questions can make a tremendous difference in difference in outcome. So when we judge the question we're about to ask before we ask it, it becomes a stupid question because the only stupid question is the one left unasked. Yes. That is that's so true. Cause I think people are afraid to ask because they don't want to have it ruled a stupid question. But right. like you said, it's a stupid question. If you don't ask it. Cause if you've got the question, somebody else on the team or in the group does too. <laughs> Well, I, we just had, I had a work conversation and that was literally the topic was you might as well just ask it. Who cares what people think? It's like someone else is probably thinking it out there. They're just afraid to ask it. And you're kind of, it's kind of going back to when we talked about that leader, you're taking that initiative to ask those questions because it's going to help the team in a way. Yeah. And if you know all the answers already, why the hell do you have a team? Yep. If y'all agree on everything, somebody's superfluous. Right. Your, your, your team is supposed to bring more information, better information, better decision making together, not just everybody say yes to the same thing. What's been the biggest challenge you have faced as an entrepreneur? Slowing down. Why is that? So I get excited. As I said, I'm an immersive learner and I'll go, I'll go full in full speed, ready to go. And for me, pausing, because if I get, just because I have energy for something or I'm excited about something doesn't mean it's a good use of the only four currencies that matter, time, effort, energy, and attention. Mm-hmm. You know, when I manage my world based on how I want to expend those and where I will recharge or replenish those, then I am so much more fulfilled and even more effective. You know, my world is all about designing the life that you want and then designing your business to support it. But it starts with figuring out what you want your life to be Mm -hmm. and then organizing everything else around it. We have this tendency, even before COVID, but when the lines of home and office and space all got blurred to like, you know, give our 50, 60, 70 hour work, we can jam our life into the cracks around it. Well, that's why we have that asinine phrase, work-life balance. That's the worst thing we ever did to people who work in this country because we've told them that work should come first and that's wrong. Yep. Right. It, work shouldn't even be in the equation. Actually, it should be life rhythm, not even work, not even life work balance because you're not balancing two things. Your life has more than two things, family, community, faith, travel, whatever the things are that light you up, that are part of your world, the places you choose to invest your time, effort, energy, and attention. Those are the things that are part of that equation. And you're not going to say all of those in one phrase. That's why it's life rhythm. You're finding a rhythm between all those elements of your life. The longer we, we, we subscribe to this bullshit term of work-life balance, we're literally killing people or yep. fueling the great resignation. Have you been able to find that life rhythm as you've gotten through your time as an entrepreneur? Find it? Constantly recreate it. How do you recreate it? Um, by paying attention. I don't, this is going to sound flippant. It's not that I don't care about money. I enjoy it, but it's not that I enjoy money. I have no emotional or intrinsic attachment to money. None of us do. 
It's an agreed upon fiction. It's these little pieces of paper that some people will kill over. Yep. They have no value. They've been divorced from the metal currencies for, for almost, I mean, going on 70 years. So it's ridiculous. We attach so much meaning to this fiction. And yet what, we, what I enjoy is what I'm able to do because of the money. But mm-hmm. the money enables me to have and do in my life. And so when I, when I constantly rebalance my portfolio of true currencies, time with my family, time on my own, exercise, faith, community, work, yep. <laughs> coaching, personal growth. When I keep those pistons constantly rebalancing, that's how I maintain rhythm. No, I agree. Something you have to pay attention to every day. My, my wife and I, we've been married February be 30 years. And, and we joke, we say it jokingly, but it's really a hard truth. Marriage is the hardest work you'll do every day. But if you do it every day, it's not that hard. Yep. And same with creating a life rhythm. If you're paying attention to it, it's not that hard. We go unconscious, then it comes hard as hell. When you're coaching and working with clients, what's the biggest thing you're wanting to help them with? Well, you know, saying is you coach best what you need most. So slow the hell down and, and live with intention. What is it that you want out of this world? Not, not what do you think your family wants or your lineage wants or this community wants or your boss wants? So what is it you want? Then you can navigate everything else around it. It always starts here. You know, when I, I, I work with leaders or the ones that I don't want to work with are the ones who say, fix my team. Right? <laughs> the first thing is, so if you want to grow your company, grow your people. If you want to grow your people, grow yourself. Leadership always starts here. So when they say, fix my team, it's like, okay, you're part of the team. Yep. I coach the entire team. That means you're fodder for it as well. So those are the folks that I work with, where it's how I grow and what my values are and how I lead trickles down through the entire company. A leader that says, here, fix my team. You know, the fish rots from the head down. It's almost like a domino effect. If it starts from up there, it's going to just branch down to the rest of the employees. And I think a lot of companies and a lot of people that are listening to this can relate to that because they got to start with the the top tier and then work work their way down. Yeah. And that's actually why I added team coaching. 10 years ago that, that I ran into the situation where I would work with the leader and the leader starts to notice their internal culture changing, their behaviors, their outcomes all changing. And then they look over their shoulder and they're like, huh, all my old stuff is the, has become the culture of the team. What can, and they ask, what can we do about that? So I spent a lot of time working on team coaching certification and I keep working on that all the way along. And that's where that comes from. It's like, wow, we need to do something here as well. Mm-hmm. And it's the best example. The culture of the leader is the culture of the leadership team, which becomes the culture of the company. And when people are running away from jobs during this great resignation, it's not because they necessarily have somewhere to go. They're leaving the other people there. Or worse. And I know we talk about the great resignation because that's such a hip topic right now. The, the real problem is disengagement. That there are millions of people who have quit their jobs. They just haven't left. Mm-hmm. They're checked out. Yep. And that's worse. 
when you're working with these clients, are they kind of surprised at the different perspective that you give and how you're able to analyze a situation in the short amount of time you're working with them? There's the difference between coaching and consulting. Um, I may have a read on it, but it's not my analysis of it. Coaching, you know, for folks who haven't had coaching before, um, coaching is more about creating the container for the client to do the work. As a consultant, I had to do all the heavy lifting. That's what the job is. As a coach, Mm -hmm. predominantly the client's work. They're looking at, you know, I'm opening up the questions that will help them unpack what's actually happening and what's important to them in dealing with it and what the outcomes are they're looking for and how to connect those dots. There are times where I'll bring in the thinking partner or consulting role as well, but that's a very different piece of it. And that's by design. Coaching is about the client mining their own wisdom. So you, it's more like you want them to do the work because as if you just did it, they're not really learning and them get, being involved, they're learning and how to be able to utilize those tools that you're able to offer them. Yeah. There's a drastically oversimplified um, concept on my website, which is, you know, let's say you don't know how to ride a bike, mm-hmm. right? Well, the therapist will let you, I had a psych degree, so. <laughs> They said the therapist will lay you on the couch every Thursday for an hour until you're dead to figure out what your mom said when you were five that keeps you from riding a bike today, right? The consultant will stand you on the curb, ride around in a circle on the bike, hand you the invoice and a bike and leave. The coach holds the seat while you climb on, runs along letting go of the seat when you're ready. And so it's a different approach to it altogether. Yeah. If I do it for them, if I give them the answer, if I create the shift for them, it's very temporary. Yeah. The the work that the coach does is deeper than just changing behaviors to get different results. It's, it's helping the client work on the beliefs and the thoughts and the emotions, and even the identity layer underneath all of that. So that what's changing those actions is core to who they are. Otherwise I'm just handing them a fishing rod. (laughs) <laughs> they may not even know how to use the fishing rod. Right. <laughs> <laughs> then you got to coach them on that part. <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how, that's how consultants stay employed forever. <laughs> I know I did it a long time. Talk about the kind of the concept of writing your book. What got you inspired to do that? And what's the mission of it when someone's reading it? Right, let me, so for the folks out there who think I'll never write a book, I was never going to write a book, right? And, and what I realized in this process is I had created a whole bunch of intellectual capital, lots of things that I had written or live videos that I had put out there. And all of a sudden I, got, I looked at all this and I was like, wow, I can collect that all and actually create a book. And it's amazing when we start to look at all the things that we've been putting out in the world, it's mm-hmm. astounding how many of us could actually write a book because I did not start this off to write a book. I wanted to be more facile speaking to any topic through the lens of my point of view, live and off the cuff, right? I'd taken improv. I've done tons of stuff like that, but I wanted to be able to do that live on on camera. And my business cards all have different quotes on the back. And you can tell from this already, I'm a bit of a quote nerd. And they're like (laughs) 50 different quotes on the back. Quotes are a great shorthand to give to to accelerate a conversation or accelerate concept adoption. Um, And 
I, my marketing person at the time said, Hey, you know, they're prioritizing Facebook live at the time. Why don't you just flip on Facebook, start a live stream, pick up one of the cards and wax poetic for 10 minutes. I'm like, so evidently what she said after that, I didn't hear because I was throwing up inside my head um, (laughs) was, oh, it could be a talk, a TED talk, a book, programs. I mean, she was seeing the whole arc of it. I'm like, so uh, begrudgingly on Groundhog Day of 2018, I started doing these live Mindset Mondays with DTK broadcasts. They're 10 to 12 minutes on leadership, mindset, and learning because they're all inextricably linked. And it's done through the lens of a quote. And I, it, it's all based on not just what I've put out there, what I've learned from the community and what happens during these, during these feeds on four different platforms is lots of comments back and forth that make it into the content of each episode. So I took the first year of those and created a model for how people can take the content from the book and actually use it in their own world. Because I hate the idea of it just being shelfware. Right? <laughs> You're going to buy a book, you should A, finish it, and B, do something with it. Yeah. Right? Only 41% of people who buy a book ever read past chapter one. Yep. So if I'm going to put all this into it, I want them to get something out of it. So each chapter is, the purpose of it is, in the intro, I use a quote that's um, from Carl Jung. It's actually from the Talmud before that. But it's the idea that we do not see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And what's powerful about that, because it's depressing on the surface, what's powerful about that is we have ultimate control over how we perceive the world around us. Right? Can't change the world, but we can change our reaction to it. It's the only thing we have control over. Mm-hmm. So if we change our lens, we change the evidence that we collect, we change what we experience. So it's changing your lens, change your life. And each of the 52 chapters, one for each week of the year, um, each of the 52 chapters are easily digestible, immediately actionable. And there's six custom prompts at the end of each chapter to walk people through how to take that concept into their world and do something with it. So we've had a bunch of leadership teams around the country that are using it every week. They'll do the first part of their, their team meeting is going through whatever chapter that was and what the prompts have had them doing throughout that week. So again, teams have been book clubbing my book. <laughs> so it basically is a book that keeps the reader interactive with it because oh, yeah. with those prompts, I like that idea of the prompts at the end where you're taking that concept and you're giving the reader ways to utilize it in their lives from a different perspective. Absolutely. Like why else, why else would you put content in front of somebody if you don't want them to do something with it? That's so true. Looking at your journey, do you feel that you would have changed anything or do you feel that every step that you've taken has taught you a lot about yourself and it helps you grow as a person? Oh, well, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so, so, all right. So I have many, many cringeworthy points in my past, right? Where even thinking about them, I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's my skin crawl. But, but here's what I know. Yes. Every one of them have taught me something, every single experience, even the ones that I try to forget. But when I looked at my wife and I looked at our three children and our, our daughter-in-law, if any of those cringeworthy moments, if I went back and redid any one of them, those humans wouldn't be part of my world. Three of them wouldn't exist. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. 
it's so easy to go back and say, oh my God, I wish I never did that. Yeah, everything would be different. No matter how small that sliding door moment is, the more that we, it becomes impossible to write our next chapter while we're constantly rereading previous ones. Mm -hmm. And when I talk about integration, it's about, hey, those are all part of who I was and who I am. It's part of my origin story. It's part of my history. It's part of my present and it's gonna be part of my future. If I try to get rid of all that, I worse, if I try to erase it, what else do I miss out on? Yeah. So no, I, I wouldn't trade a moment. I think you hit it right on the nose. It's where each, like our past, it teaches you a lot about yourself, but it kind of maybe possibly sets you up for that next part or that next chapter. And I think the same way. I'm happy what has happened because it's got me to where I am today. And I'm excited to see what that future me will be in the next few years and all that. Yeah, I just heard one today that from Paul Coelho that a mistake repeated is a decision. Yeah. And, and the more we keep ourselves aware of and integrate the mistakes that we've made, the less likely we are to do it again. Man, I love these quotes that you come up or you like, I, I, I'm a person, I will look up quotes. I will post about quotes because I think it's just like, it's easy to digest, but it's so universal and everyone can use it and how they want to use it. Mm -hmm. So there's, and there's a great site. This I'll I'll send, I know that some of the listeners are going to go on a nerd hole because I did. (laughs) It's a great site called uh, quoteinvestigator.com. And it pulls so many of the quotes that we know, we know from history and they're ascribed to people that those people had nothing to do with them. And it's astounding. Um, Einstein's famous for a quote saying, you cannot solve a problem with the same thinking that created it. He never said it. <laughs> in fact, he didn't say anything like it because I used it in like chapter 26 and I had to go get, the publisher made me go get approval from the estate. And they said, no, it's not his, nothing like it. Wow, <laughs> but it's it's amazing how often you know apocryphal lines get misattributed to people, and yep. so it's a great site. <laughs> so, what does the future look like for you? What are you hoping to accomplish personally and professionally in the next few years? <laughs> All right, so Monday, November, 1st, <laughs> yeah, so uh, Monday, no, no, no. the next few days, <laughs> I'm retiring. I'm stopping mindset Mondays. <laughs> My last broadcast, the 193rd episode is, is Monday. Um, be, be, I, and I probably, I probably could have stopped it half a year ago. And, and the reason is not because it's not having impact and not because it's done. It'll still have its run with the book. And I still talk about it. The, the difference is my next chapter is about mining my own wisdom. And the, the, Next content I'm working on is working with people to mind their own wisdom and getting folks to be more comfortable with listening, you know, surfacing and listening to their own wisdom. We all have more than we already need right now. We're always looking for more. We're in a do more to get more culture. And Mm -hmm. we think that we have to learn more to make any decisions. And it's amazing how much wisdom we already have. Then when we seek through our wisdom to collect more information, it's with a purpose. So there's, there's a new podcast that's going to be launching. We're still going to drop all of Mindset Mondays publicly as well. But for me, the next piece is what do I want to do between now and 2045 when I'll be 80? 
right? So it's my 24 year mission. And the work that I've been focusing on is working with a group that I call impact billionaires. And these are fascinating humans. And I haven't talked about this publicly a lot. Um, it's really fascinating because these are not people like Elon Musk. You say, Ooh, I've made billions. Now I can do good. It's kind of the opposite, <laughs> right? It's, these are folks, impact billionaires are, they're not motivated by the number of dollars they amass. They're motivated by the number of lives they touch. And that can be all well and good, but they're working with ideas or products or systems or, or concepts that can change the lived experience of a huge swath of the, of the earth's population. And those are remarkable people and helping them expand who they're being. And therefore the impact they're having is my way of having a bigger impact footprint. That's what I'm focused on between now and 2045. This podcast just got some exclusive news just from just then. (laughs) (laughs) It's getting hot in here. (laughs) The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, Mm -hmm. what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals and rise to the challenge? Oh, this, this, Here's what surfaced immediately. It is the entire, the obstacle is the way. So whatever the obstacle is, is, is your way through. Ryan Holiday wrote a brilliant book about it. The obstacle is the way. And it all comes down to your self-belief. If you believe in the obstacle more than you believe in yourself, you're dead. You're absolutely stuck. There, there, there are literally no obstacles. There are only ways through and around. Always. So do the work, you know, all capitals, the work, <laughs> this work, the internal work, the rest of it becomes easier. Slow down to speed up. Well, David, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future has for you. Me too. I can't wait to see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow, subscribe on all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode and video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.